Welcome to Politics Plus, conversations about American politics, economics, history, and culture. I'm your host, Michael Baranowski, a political scientist at Northern Kentucky University. Before I get to today's interview, I wanted to let everyone know that I am changing the release schedule for Politics Plus. Originally, I thought I'd be able to do a show every week, but it turns out that that's not going to be sustainable for me in the long run. Basically, between doing Politics Plus and the Politics Guys, and oh, by the way, I have a day job teaching, I realized that if I wanted to put out a new show for Politics Plus every week, the amount of time I'd have to spend reading and uh, trying to get authors and other people to come on, there would be no way I could do that without just being a lot more superficial in the sort of questions and my review of their books. And, and I just did not want to sacrifice quality for the sake of, you know, putting out content on a regular basis. So from now on, it's still going to be every Monday, but it'll be every second Monday. And I think that will allow me to keep what I think is the same good level of quality and not just, you know, throw content out there at you, but really talk to authors and other people who I think are worth talking to can really add something important to our conversations about politics, economics, history, and culture. My guest today is Beck Dory Stein, who worked as a White House stenographer from 2012 through 2017. She's written about her experiences in the just-released book, From the Corner of the Oval. Now, I'm typically a pretty slow reader, but I finished this book in record time, and it's full of Great writing, wonderful stories, romance, betrayal, victory, defeat. I mean, it's, it's got it all, including plenty of insight about what goes on behind the scenes at the White House. Beck Stein, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Mike. So, yeah, I, the place I'd love to start is with this, this great story, the, the bizarre way that you became a White House stenographer, which, which involves, among other things, a, a part-time tutoring job, a Craigslist, and a mysterious woman named Bernice. So could you talk about that a little bit? <laughs> Absolutely. Bizarre is the right word for it. Um, I moved to D.C. in the spring of 2011 to take a temporary tutoring job at a private school there. It was going to be three months in and out. Then I would figure out the rest of my life from there. I wasn't planning on staying in D.C. And then, of course, that's when I fell in love with a guy and decided to stay in D.C. through summer and fall. Didn't have a job. Uh, ended up with five part-time jobs. So uh, tutoring, working at Lululemon, cocktail waitressing. I was kind of a jack-of-all-trades. And then I was also applying to 10 jobs a day on Craigslist in the hopes of, at some point, becoming a paralegal and then going to law school. So one of the jobs I applied to on Craigslist, I, was, I could be a typist, a stenographer for a law firm. So I agreed to go in and take this test with the hopes that, okay, if they hire me for a typist, then I can become a paralegal someday. And so I went in and took the test, but I didn't love the office dynamics. It just sort of seemed stale. And so I walked out and was like, no, thank you. They called me back for an interview, which I actually blew off because my shift at Lululemon ran late. And lo and behold, I'm in the post office mailing my brother a birthday package. And this woman writes back and she's like, it's okay. You blew off this interview. I understand you're busy, but just for transparency's sake, this is actually a job at the White House and you'd be traveling with the president. And my first thought was, <laughs> president of what? <laughs> like, what are you talking about? 
<laughs> so then I went back and did a real interview and somehow miraculously Bernice, the mysterious woman from Craigslist, gave me the job at the White House. Well, and, you know, the, the first thing I think most most listeners would think is, what's the White House doing advertising on Craigslist, right? I mean, that's yeah. it's crazy. Well, it might have. Yeah, it might have come to that at this point in the Trump administration, but it wasn't actually a political job in the Obama administration. It was a contracting job. Right. So we were this third party that um, was hired out. Usually they she recruited from the State Department, but she, I asked her about it and she said she had run out of people. She wasn't sure how to find good people. So she had resorted to Craigslist. Lucky for me. Wow. So why do you think you were picked for the job? I asked Bernice in the interview because I was in shock the whole time, even while I was talking to her about it. And she said it was two things. One, I was a, I was an English major in college. So she was like, if nothing else, you can probably spell. And secondly, um, because I had taught at Sidwell Friends, which is where the Obama girls attended, I had already undergone an FBI background check. And so she thought, well, if you can be around the Obama girls, you can probably be around the president. Right. So there was no then uh, ideological test involved or anything like that, right? I mean, it, was, it wasn't that they checked to see if you were liberal or conservative or, or, or was there anything like that that you know of? No, not at all. Uh, Peggy, my boss for the whole time I was there, had started with Reagan. A bunch of people in that contracting company had been there through multiple administrations. So there was definitely no uh, ideological test, which, for me, it was a plus and a minus because I was like, there's no one else I would do this for except Barack Obama. Right. So, you know, I wanted to ask you about the politics because there's there's a point in the book uh, that, that you actually say, I don't actually like politics that much. But it, it seems to me in, in reading the book that that maybe you became more political over time. Is that is that right? Definitely. I think. From an outsider's perspective, when you think about politics, you think about suits and you think about people treating each other terribly and being really fake and stabbing each other in the back. And that's what I thought of when I thought of politics. And also, you know, it was like, what's getting done? I don't know. These people in Congress just go on vacation all the time. I don't get it. Um, And then the longer I was in D.C. and really at the White House, it was like, you can't not be interested in politics because it affects us all without us even realizing it. And the politics are personal. And that's what I realized being there is like each person had a story that was affected by Obama's policies, whether they knew it or not. So the the personal aspect is certainly one thing. And I guess the other aspect is how incredibly hard everyone works, which is something I think that a lot of people don't really uh, don't really appreciate. Uh, was there anything else in terms of politics that you, you sort of changed your your views on or, or how you you know how you looked at it? I think the longer I was at the Obama White House, it was more every every ounce of energy counts. And that trickled down from the president himself. He was always like, the most important person is citizen here, right? So we can all vote. We can all go knock on doors. And that became really important to me as far as seeing, oh, this isn't, if you're not in the White House, it's not like you're helpless. It's actually outside the White House that that's where the voices are being heard or not heard. And that's where it's really important to advocate. It also seemed to me that there was a a feeling of just so incredibly much to do and so little time. I don't know. Was that is that part of the vibe? It was definitely part of the vibe. 
but my job was very straightforward. So I would go in to these meetings or press briefings or interviews in the Oval Office, and I would record them and then later transcribe them in my office. So no matter how crazy things were, my job remained the same. So it was more when I would get called in at the last second for three back-to-back meetings. That's when it was kind of like, okay, things are a little wild right now. But for the most part, it was more, it's funny to say, but it's like when you enter a house uh, or a workplace and you just feel it, like the tension is palpable and you're like, so many things are going on, but they're all happening behind closed doors. And I'm sort of getting the polished version that they're uh, saying in front of the press team. You know, when I first heard about the book, I thought, wait, stenographer, they still have, it seems like a bizarre idea. But then when I thought about it, everything has to be, I mean, everything public has to be recorded and so forth. And, and somebody has to, has to actually do that. But it's one of those jobs that obviously has to exist, but I never thought about. It. And so I, I was kind of wondering, <laughs> yeah, you know, I, were you sort of expected? I to had be, the same thought. Oh, there you go. I mean, what was it like? They thought they wanted you to be like a, like a piece of furniture, part of the scenery, just to kind of blend in sort of thing. More or less. Yeah. So um, as a White House stenographer, my job was sort of to be the walking human record. So we were very much expected to blend into the scenery, very much expected to never say anything uh, and just make sure that our recorders were fully stocked with fresh batteries and were running the whole time. And that when we transcribed, uh, they were accurate depictions of what had transpired in every meeting. Yeah, it, it, it actually, you got a little bit of a little bit, I guess, a pushback. Maybe it's jokingly about about your wardrobe, right? Because of that, and you, it's great some of the uh, scenes you, you you paint about how the kind of basic black of uh, of DC, but more like a men's warehouse kind of Ann Taylor loft. <laughs> I love that bit. But but uh, so Thank I guess you. that I never really thought about. Uh, politics in terms of fashion, but of course, appearances are, you know, a very important part of it. Absolutely. And so I had this teaching background. So I had been around the high school kids for the last three years. And so my wardrobe reflected that. And when you're teaching at 7 a.m. to a bunch of 14-year-olds who just want to be asleep still, I would wear bright colors, one, because I like them, and two, because it made (laughs) it woke them up, Uh, for better or for worse. It was like, whoa, that is a very bright dress. So I came into the White House with not a whole lot of savings, and I had this wardrobe full of fun, bright colors. And when I tried to wear them at the White House, which I, you know, I flirted with not doing it for a while, and I didn't feel like myself when I went back to wearing these bright colors. But as a stenographer, where you're expected to blend in, and you're supposed to sort of be a chameleon with whatever sort of off-white walls are behind you, there was definitely pushback. You know, I was not important enough to wear bright colors. And at the same time, I couldn't not wear bright colors. It was just who I was. Right. And according to what you wrote in the book, before you actually took the job, you you binge watched The West Wing, which I think is what most of us, at least of of a certain age, uh, that's, that's kind of our impression of behind the scenes at the White House. And so I have to ask you, how close was the show to to the reality that you experienced? In certain ways, it was similar as far as the the energy and kind of the nonstop movement. I've heard people talk about, like, where did these stairs and long corridors come from? There's all this walking in the West Wing where, like, CJ will be talking to Toby for a full two minutes. And you're like, what? Like, there's no stretch that's two minutes long. Except, I guess, if you went into the East Wing or the residence. But no one was ever doing that while they were having these important meetings. Um, so the the long stairwells were like, where where were those? We didn't have those. The West Wing itself is actually extremely cramped. Everything 
everything and everyone is sort of piled on top of each other. Um, but the, the energy is sort of the same. The idealism is the same. So there's that. But more importantly, there's, you know, a ton of young people and very diverse staffers, at least in the Obama White House. So that was always cool. They had these incredible backgrounds. They all had these big dreams. And obviously in a show, you can't, you can't depict every single person who's doing important work. But from my behind the scenes perspective, being in the real West Bank, I was constantly bowled over by how many people were assets to just the day to day. And there wasn't just Toby, but there was an entire speechwriting team. And there wasn't just DJ, but a lower press office and an upper press office. So there were just so many webs that overlapped and didn't overlap that kept the place running. Yeah. You know, I, it, it also, I really got a sense of that, especially when you talked about all the trips that you took. And I got this feeling from the book that they were not exactly on the verge of breaking down, but there were just so many people and so many moving parts and, and, and that there was like one, one thing going wrong and maybe the wheels could fall off, but they didn't. It was really kind of an <laughs> intense sort of thing, you know? Yeah. Well, that's the beauty of Air Force One and an active duty military that takes their job extremely seriously. Yeah, I assume flying on Air Force One, and you talk about this a bit, that that's considerably different than, than flying commercial, even if you're flying first class. It is. I've never flown first class. I'm always I'm always asking people, I'm like, what's it like in first class? They're like, you flew on Air Force One. But it is different as far as we were working the whole time. Um, so it's a really, it's a very comfortable plane, but it is meant to be efficient as far as transporting us from one important meeting to another. And those meetings just might be in different cities or countries that are, you know, scheduled three hours apart from each other. Now, really throughout the book, one of the other things I got a, a real sense of was just this, this intensity. I mean, the hours you worked were, were nuts. Obviously the stakes were incredibly high and there's a bunch, I mean, you were but the, in your late twenties and late 20s, early 30s during that time. And and all these people around you are kind of around the same age. And and there's, you know, people are obviously really tense and there's a, a lot of off hours, uh, you should call it recreational drinking to let off steam and so forth. And it seemed to me like this is like, this is like a reality show, like the best reality show ever. Is that is that a reasonable way to characterize it? Sadly, no, Mike. I think now it might be. Uh, I think Donald Trump would actually be thrilled if we characterized his administration as a reality show because he cares about ratings sure. so much. But no, um, from President Obama on down during the Obama administration, no one at the White House was interested in sort of the theatrics of politics or the drama of it all. Um, the hours were crazy. You're right about that. And the stakes were huge. And there were a bunch of 20-something staffers trying to figure their lives out and making a bunch of mistakes in the process. Um, but there actually wasn't a ton of off hours recreational drinking, mostly because we were rarely off hours. Right. Uh, I think I wrote about five nights when we went out drinking in over the course of the book. And those were basically the five times we went out drinking over the five years I was okay. in the White House. Maybe that's why they just stuck uh, yeah. out to me. Yeah. Right. No, no, no. So if I'd accurately depicted life on the road, it would have been me getting to my hotel room at like 1130 at night and collapsing and falling asleep <laughs> in my clothes because I was exhausted. There was just not a whole lot of partying, but that would have made for a very boring book. 
So I had to kind of pluck the few instances where we were let off leash sure. to describe how fun it was. So were there a lot of what I guess people would call true believers that was, was the, you know, the, 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 that sense of being on a, being on a mission basically, as opposed, cause I think some people say, well, these are just ambitious shark folks who are just looking to move up. But then I think, well, maybe these are people who largely just really believe in the president and the agenda and that sort of thing. What was, what was your sense of that? Very much so. No, these were true believers are still true believers. I think we all wholeheartedly believe in the mission. And I was a contractor and I just, I had always admired President Obama before I was brought in, but at the same time, once you get there, it's like you slurp up that Obama Kool-Aid because you can't not because everyone so genuinely believes in it. And I think D.C., D.C.'s culture is very, uh, you know, ladder climbing. But when you get to the White House, the beauty is kind of you've already reached this peak place that everyone aspires to be. And so instead of it being about ego, it becomes much more about the mission. And everyone's so excited and honored to serve under President Obama. It's like, okay, how can we make him proud? Like, how can we do this so it reflects really well on him and the administration? And how are we helping the most amount of people? Because that's what he was always saying. His meetings were always about how can we help more people? And so that trickled down to even the stenographer. It was like, how can I help more people? Well, there's a phrase that that pops up a lot that I guess you all used as kind of a shorthand: living living the dream, right? Is that that's it, right? Yeah. And yeah. so, can, can you explain kind of what that what that stood for? Living the dream was because we all knew we had reached this peak, right? So, in a lot of ways, working at the White House, especially under President Obama, you've peaked. You're not going to get any cooler than that. And so, in that sense, you are genuinely living the dream. But on a day to day basis. When you haven't eaten in seven hours and your like lunch from four hours ago has actually accidentally been tossed down by your coworker because they said it looks gross and you're starving and you're so thirsty and you've had to go to the bathroom for four hours and no one cares because there's all of this work that needs to be done and three people who were supposed to email you back still haven't emailed you back. So you're actually worried you're missing a meeting right now, but you don't know and they changed the room. And finally, someone writes to you and they're like, hey, uh, how's it going up there? You write back living the dream because it does not feel like you're living the dream in that moment. You just are so overwhelmed. So, so I guess one of the things that you really need to have to be able to uh, survive and thrive in this atmosphere, and you were there for, for years, is an ability to deal with uh, chaos, uncertainty, that sort of thing, right? Yes. And a, a big part of learning how to deal with that is taking your cues from people who have been there longer. I had an amazing group of friends, especially this group of slightly older women who I just always looked to. And it was sort of like the young duckling was looking up and being like, okay, well, this is how they're doing it. This is how I have to do it. And you figure out your coping mechanisms. Because, I mean, I could see some people saying, oh, look, she got to meet the president a bunch of times and she traveled to, I think it's, was it 45 countries? And, but, but, but really this was just, this was just an incredible amount of work. Yes, it was a lot of work and more times than not, you're just in these places. So I just remember being in Malaysia (laughs) and there was a woman from, uh, the American embassy in Malaysia. And she hopped into the press one van, which is where I always rode in the motorcade. And my assigned seat was in shotgun in the passenger seat. So she hopped in into my assigned seat 
And she was, and all the, it was very sweet. All the reporters and photographers were like, Hey, that's sex beat. And she was like, Oh, do you want it? And I was so tired because I think that was the third country on that swing. And I was like, No, you can have it. It's fine. I'll go sit in the back. And so I sat in the back and she wanted to sit in the front because she wanted to play tour guide. She had lived there for a number of years and she was so excited. And I just remember so well, she was wearing all white and it was so hot in Malaysia when we were there. She was wearing all white. She looked great. She had this enthusiasm that none of us had by the third country on an, on an Asia swing. And then it was so funny because by the second day she was like, Beck, you can have your seat back. <laughs> I was like, what? And she was like, this is not as glamorous as I thought it would be. And she just went in the back and like slumped out. She was exhausted because it's just like you are moving nonstop. And even if you're just holding, you're waiting in a van, but you're waiting in a van for like two hours while President Obama wraps up this meeting that's really important that you're not going to be included in, but you need to be ready to go. She's ready to go. And so there's a lot of hurry up and wait, as we like to say. And it's all really important, even when you feel like it's, you know, it's supposed to be glamorous and it's not at all. It's the opposite of that. Well, maybe that's one of the advantages of having a lot of younger people doing that just because it's easier to deal with that sort of thing, the long hours, the stress, the poor diet, all that kind of stuff, as opposed to when you're, you know, middle-aged old or something like that. Absolutely. I mean, it's your whole life. Working at the White House absorbs everything in your life, whether you want it to or not. It's very difficult to carve out personal space without compromising what you're doing at work. And when you're working for the president, you don't want to do that. So I always sort of compare it to being in college where the people you're studying with are also your best friends and also your social friends and you do everything together. And so then afterwards, when it's all over, you sort of look up and you're like, what do you mean we're not all going to live two blocks apart and walk to work together every day and hang out on every single weekend? It's, it's still very strange to me. I'm still very homesick for that world. Well, you know, and, and the relationship aspect of, of the book was something that was very fascinating to me. I can't tell you how many times you, you would you would talk about it. I won't I won't give anything away, but but I, I would see you start to do something and I'd say, No, Beck, don't don't do that. Don't. <laughs> Listen to Noah. He knows what he's talking about. <laughs> so I mean that was that was really great because it brought together both that kind of behind the scenes thing and also the the emotional turmoil and so forth, which was which was really fascinating. But I can always tell I'm really into a book when I'm yelling at the character to not do something, you know. So <laughs> Thank you for being invested in my well-being. Absolutely. Uh, yes. I think, I I feel like most women I've met have been through at least one relationship, like the one I had with my one coworker, Jason. And normally people go through these sort of dead-end relationships earlier. I remember being in high school and my friends would be in a relationship. I'd be like, stop being so dumb. <laughs> and then I had sort of a holier-than-thou approach. And so it's kind of funny and also a kick in the pants looking back now that it was like, oh, I had to wait till I was, what, 26 before I found myself in this terrible knot of a relationship and realizing that I keep doing the same dumb thing that I was yelling at Catherine for doing when we were 17. Yeah, <laughs> but yeah. now I'm doing it 10 years later. So everyone sort of has that relationship at one point or another. And I think part of why I was excited to tell that story and in a sense, proud to tell that story was that it's so universal. And when I was going through it, I felt very much alone and was so mad at myself. And then even just writing was very therapeutic where I could kind of connect the dots and see how that might have happened and also constantly being thrown the other side of the world with this person who I found irresistible 
we're going to make some mistakes. Yeah. Well, yeah, it was, I felt awful for you, but it makes for great reading. So there's that, you know, you oh, got that you. out of it, but uh, you know, you were obviously in the white house during both campaign and non-campaign times. Uh, how do things change when there's a campaign going on? So my job basically stayed the same regardless of what was going on. Uh, the big difference I noticed during campaign years is that the trips almost all became domestic, which meant we spoke more about domestic issues. So in 2012, I learned a ton about the Affordable Care Act, which had passed few years earlier, but it was only in 2012 as we were campaigning across the country that we were meeting people who were giving uh, the opening speech for President Obama. So before he came on stage at a rally, they would have an introducer, and that person was more often than not someone who had directly benefited from Obamacare. And that was pretty wild. You would hear these stories, and either that person was only alive because of Obamacare, or their mother was, or their daughter, or their sister was. And coming face to face with this is what a good leader and what good policy can do was pretty eye opening. Yeah, I bet. Now, you were also there during a number of uh, tragedies, crises, and school shootings, school shootings, terror attacks, and so forth. How did how did things change there? What did you what did you see in the response to those to those events? So sometimes the White House is different than any other place on earth, and sometimes it's a complete mirror of the rest of the world. So after a school shooting or a terrorist attack, we reacted as people. I think after Newtown, President Obama came out. Yeah, it was after Newtown. President Obama came to the briefing room and delivered a statement and said basically the same thing. He said, I'm reacting to this news today, not as president, but as a parent. And so then when we would go up to these places, it was, it was devastating and it was heartbreaking, but that wasn't because we were reacting as staffers or politicians or anything. It was just seeing it. It's just heartbreak. No, you also have, were in the position of seeing the president on a, you know, I guess on a fairly regular basis. Uh, I love the stories where you'd be on the treadmill and he'd just sort of turn up next to you there. Uh, (laughs) And there was that one really uh, uh, the great, one of the great stories in the book, uh, your trip on Marine One with him on your, in your 28th, 28th birthday. Um, and so I'm sure you get the, well, what's he like question uh, uh, an awful lot. And, you know, whenever I think about that, I think about this quote from Chris Rock, who said, uh, Obama is cooler than most politicians, but not as cool as actual cool people. And so I'm wondering, <laughs> and that, that's Chris Rock. Chris you know, Rock. Uh, well, what, do you, what, what, do you, what do you think about that? Um, I love Chris Rock. And I guarantee that Chris Rock hangs out with much cooler people than I do. So we probably have different bars of what the coolest people are. I don't think he got that right. I consider myself pretty normal. And I'd say President Obama was very cool. But that said, he's also a dad. He's just totally a dad at the end of the day. So he's kind of over trying to be cool. Every once in a while, he like cracks a total dad joke, which I appreciate because he's just not into creating any sort of persona. But if being cool means, you know, leaving a lasting impression on everyone you meet, I'd say President Obama is the coolest. Okay. <laughs> so also, it's interesting to me, I didn't realize at first that you didn't leave the White House when 
President Obama did, which makes sense because, you know, like you said, it wasn't a it was a, a contract position. But so I wonder if you could talk a little bit about what it was like at work on November 9th, twenty sixteen, which was the of course the day after Donald Trump was elected president. Sort of like what we were talking about during a tragedy or a terrorist attack. Sometimes the White House is completely different than the rest of the world and sometimes it's the same and so in this case it was also the same where or a lot for a lot of the country right so we were raw we were shocked we were devastated it basically when i got to the white house that day it felt like a funeral um which is why when president obama came out into the rose garden that day and delivered the statement and told us the sun is up and that he supported Trump in, you know, trying to do what's best for the country moving forward. It was such a testament to his leadership. I remember standing there in the Rose Garden and my jaw was just on the ground. I was like, how is he able to say this yeah. right now? Because I was so heartbroken. And most of us for days and weeks after that, it was like we could barely make eye contact with each other without having to fight back tears because the loss was so great and it was so raw. And again, I don't think that was so different than the way a lot of the country was feeling at that time, too. Yeah. And of course, there were a lot of people in the administration who, I mean, when the, the presidency ends, you, you think about the next thing you're going to do. And for a lot of people, just like for the general public, it seemed like, well, Hillary Clinton has this more or less in the bag and people were making plans and thinking about what a Clinton administration would be like for them and maybe positions they would have. And so the effect of that would be even I would imagine, more magnified than the general public. Right. Absolutely. So then when uh, inauguration did happen in 2017 and Trump came in, it was crazy because they had just refused to do anything during the transition. And they just anything that President Obama had done, anything that we had done, they basically wanted to do the complete opposite, which also meant that they hadn't hired anyone or maybe they just couldn't find anyone to hire. But my first day in the Trump White House, I walked into the West Wing and I have just never felt so overwhelmingly alone or scared or overwhelmed. So I walked into the West Wing from West Exec and where all of my friends' offices had been, now it was just empty. And it was like a ghost town. It was like there had been a fire drill and everyone had gone out except for me, where the black frames that usually held the jumbo photographs, those were empty and everyone was just gone. And then every once in a while, you'd see someone, presumably from the Trump administration, kind of sprint walking past me, looking totally frazzled and lost. And they actually probably were literally lost because in those <laughs> first few days, people just had no idea where they were going. Well, yeah, I, I would think especially not just with the with a new president coming in, but given, you know, given the fact that President Trump was very much an outsider and a lot of the people he brought in just didn't have that sort of experience. It had to be just such a such an astonishing uh, contrast. Exactly. They had no background. I yeah. mean, I think even giving them the benefit of the doubt, which is transitioning into the White House is unlike anything. You can only prepare so much, but because they had been so adamantly opposed to cooperating with the Obama administration for a smooth transition of power, it was these people just came in and it was television personalities walking through and they were just like, well, where am I supposed to, like, where do I get ready in the morning? They just had no idea of what, right. what a serious workplace it actually was. So how long were you there for the, the, the Trump administration before you, before you left your position? 
I was there for two months, okay. the longest months of so, my life. But, so that's, I mean, that's long enough to at least get some sort of a, a sense, right? I mean, and you actually had an, had at least one encounter with President Trump. I mean, what, what was your, based on that two months, I mean, putting aside those first few weeks and so where people are just kind of getting the feel of the place, what, can you talk a little bit about the contrast between kind of what you saw especially toward the end of that first two months and, you know, what you saw with the Obama administration, anything that stands out? That, it, I mean, at least for those first two months, nothing really changed from that first day where anytime I saw someone, something was always sort of on fire, as we like to say. So it was, someone was always walking frantically. There was a ton of yelling, which was really strange. Like you would hear well yelling in the West Wing, which, Five years in the Obama administration, I never heard yelling, and there was just constant yelling. There were constant televisions on everywhere you look, which was really strange to me because President Obama doesn't watch the news, he reads the news. And so we had televisions on in the press office because they needed to keep tabs on what different networks were saying about different issues. But this was, this was like being... I don't know, at a television station where it was just constant TVs everywhere and they were all blasting. So you couldn't really hear yourself think. And so that was pretty crazy and kind of added to the sense of chaos. And I remember even on my last day, you have to get a bunch of signatures to leave the White House. You have to go from office to office and get people to sign out on things. So like when I returned my laptop, I had to get someone from the technology department to sign off. And there was one place called Room One where during the Obama administration, they dealt with all of the sort of administrative work. So I went there to get a signature and I guess they had changed it into something else because I walked into that room and there were just stacks of papers on the ground everywhere and someone screamed at me to get out and they slammed the door in my face. So it was just, whereas I think Barack Obama and his administration was all about keeping calm in the face of chaos and figuring out what they could do. What I saw in the Trump administration was the opposite, where it was just, let's almost embrace the fire. So kind of from no drama Obama to chaos central, basically. Yeah. So let's get our ratings up by creating as much drama as possible. And and you had, I know, at least one encounter, brief encounter with President Trump, right? Yes. And that on the plane. from that, yes, we could we can get a sense that that was not uh, that that did not go incredibly well. Right. And you talk about that. In the it book went. It went as expected. It was. I did one trip to Mar-a-Lago. It was on the plane. He was supposed to be giving Melania a tour of the plane. He presumably got lost in the staff cabin, which is beyond impressive because it's a plane. So there's one long aisle that stretches from the front of the plane to the back. But somehow he deviated from the path and ended up in my seat, kind of hovering over me. From muscle memory and just out of respect for the office, I stood up and said, hi, Mr. President. And he goes, hi. And I said, hi again. And then he said, hi again. And it's, it was like, oh, my gosh, we're on an episode of Teletubbies. How long can I do this? And then he actually took a step into my personal space, whereas I had backed up to give the most powerful man a little space, which I had also learned from President Obama. And he just went right into it. So it was like a, suddenly a very close Ooh. conversation. And I looked at Melania, who had caught up to him and was behind him, and she just looked at the ground. And I was, it was like almost this freeze frame moment of what is going to happen now? And luckily, uh, another aide came and grabbed him and was like, sir, I think you mean to be going back here. Wow. Oh, geez. <laughs> so it was not fun. 
but it was also not unexpected given everything we know about Donald Trump. Sure. And I, one, uh, I think one question to close out our, our discussion, and this comes up from, I think, toward the beginning of the book, actually. Uh, when you were just starting out in your very early days, you got some advice from uh, a guy named Vaughn, who'd been uh, the, the White House butler for something like was it, around 40 years, I believe it was. Um, he told yeah. you, it's just a job. I, I, what, did he, what did he mean by that? And you know, did you, at the end of your time, end up sort of buying into that, agreeing with what he meant by that? Yes. So I was really nervous when I met Vaughn. It was in the first weeks of me being at the White House. And so I was in the Roosevelt room putting down the recorders. And the Roosevelt room is uh, a room right across from the Oval Office, often used for background briefings with reporters and also senior staff meetings. So this was a for a background briefing with reporters. So before any of the reporters are escorted into the room, I was in there putting down recorders every few seats to make sure that we got good sound for the transcript. And I hadn't been around POTUS very much at that time. So my hands, I just knew my hands would shake for the entire time I was in that room. The entire time that I was around President Obama, I was like, I couldn't stop shaking. So I'm putting down the recorders before anyone else come in. And then Vaughn, one of the butlers, appears because they always had a coffee and tea service for these sorts of long uh, background briefings. And he tells me he's been there for 40 years. And he knew that I was new. And so I asked him for advice. And he said, it's just a job. And he sort of shrugged when he said it. And at the time, I was so upset because working at the White House seems like the coolest thing in the world. Like I'd finally made it. I had lucked out. And here was this guy telling me it was actually not a big deal. And five years later, when I was leaving, I realized what Vaughn had meant was that as soon as you let being a White House employee take over your life and assume your whole identity, you're in deep trouble. <laughs> and so at the end of the day, I realized it is just a job. Working at the White House doesn't make you cooler or smarter or better than anybody else. It just means you got really lucky. And as soon as you forget why you're there, which is to serve others, and as soon as you think your job is not just a job, but defines who you are, yeah. it means you've lost yourself. Yeah. And at some point, you won't work in the White House. And then who will you be? So even though I was a stenographer in the Obama White House, and sometimes I let that identity consume me, I eventually realized I'm so much more than that, and I can't let that define me anymore, which is great because I actually hated typing, but I always loved <laughs> writing. So if I had just let stenography take over my life, I would still be typing transcripts for Donald Trump, and instead I got to pursue my lifelong dream of actually writing a book. Yeah, and, and we, we wouldn't be here talking about it, and, uh, and, and as I said, it, I think it's just a, a fascinating account, and, and readers wouldn't have a chance to, to read it, which I, which I certainly hope folks will do. So with that, we will close. Beck Stein, thanks so much for taking the time to talk with me today. This was so fun. Thanks for having me, Mike. Before you go, I've got a weird political fact of the week for you. But before I get to that, I want to thank you if you subscribe to the show. It really does help out a lot. And if you haven't subscribed to the show, I hope you will. Also, it would be great if you could share this show with your friends, acquaintances, really anyone on social media or email or however you share things with people. Also, leaving reviews and ratings of the show on iTunes helps out a lot. If you want to get in touch with me, you can do that at mike at politicsplus.us. And the show's website, I can speak, is politicsplus.us. Now for my weird political fact of the week. 
Richard Nixon was a great poker player. He picked up the game somewhat later in life than most people at the age of 30 when he was a Navy lieutenant serving in World War II. An officer who served with him said, Nixon was as good a poker player as, if not better than, anyone we had ever seen. Sometimes the stakes were pretty big, but Dick had daring and flair for knowing what to do. I once saw him bluff lieutenant commander out of $1,500 with a pair of deuces. Now, this was back when the Navy lieutenant's salary was 200 bucks a month. Historian Stephen Ambrose says that it was Nixon's poker winnings that gave him the financial stake to start his political career, which began when he was elected to represent California's 12th congressional district in 1946. I'll be back with a new interview next week. I hope you'll join me.